Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Monday, February 5th. The war in the Middle East is now 122 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. It's been a nutty couple of days here, folks. Lots of action across the Middle East. We'll be covering all of it because that's what we do here at the FDD Morning Brief. So thank you for tuning in. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by my friend, Michael Rubin. Michael is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also uh, a director at uh, the Middle East Forum. He's a son of Philadelphia like me, but unlike me, he travels to Iraq often and he knows the players there like few people I've met. We'll speak to him about those Iran-backed militias that American warfighters are targeting. But first, I wanna talk about the war effort in Gaza because I think this has not gotten enough attention. For the last few weeks, we've been hearing that the IDF has had a tough slog in Gaza. Fair enough. All wars have their ups and downs, but the Israelis have definitely been on an upswing in recent days. For one, the IDF announced that it has conquered the Khan Yunus headquarters of Hamas. This was not easy, but they got it done. In the process, the IDF took the war room where Mohammed Sinwar has been directing Hamas's operations. Mohammed is the brother of Yahya Sinwar, the Hamas leader who unleashed this war back on October 7th. The Israelis aim to capture or kill both of them, and they are hot on their trail. The IDF also took an underground vault with hundreds of thousands of shekels in cash and several millions of dollars in bearer bonds. My guess? It's going to be a little harder for Hamas to pay its fighters moving forward. That payroll is not going to be easy. Now, on top of that, the Israelis say they have killed more than 10,000 Hamas fighters and another 10,000 or so are seriously injured. An estimated 70% of Hamas's fighters are now off the battlefield. Of course, there is some, uh, some tough fighting still ahead in Rafah and other Hamas holdouts. And yes, an estimated three quarters of the tunnel system remains intact. But I get the sense that this war is actually running according to Israel's schedule. It might even be ahead of schedule. There's a great editorial in today's Wall Street Journal about this with a little input from FDD. So I encourage you to read it. Of course, tough decisions loom about the day after. Winning the peace is often harder than winning the war. But maybe it's time to give the Israelis just a little credit. They are making these gains while fighting a low-intensity war in the north and conducting counter-terror operations in the West Bank. That's no simple thing. So credit where it's due. Now for your headlines. Headline one, the United States bombed Iran-backed militia targets in Iraq and Syria over the weekend, and the UK joined the US in striking Houthi targets too. It took almost a week, and that felt like too much advance warning to me, but there were an estimated 85 different targets in Iraq and Syria, and then another 35 or so in Yemen, 40 Houthis were killed in those attacks, according to the reports I read this morning. The administration is, insists that they didn't give the Iranians any advance notice of what they were going to hit, and they are not happy about the way this operation has been characterized, namely as perfunctory and pinprick. But we'll find out soon enough whether the strikes have restored deterrence. If you ask me, Iran's proxies in Iraq and Syria are not likely to stand down some will continue to strike. In fact, one of them did attack a U.S. base in Iraqi Kurdistan on Friday. Some of these proxies even have their own proxies. 
So my guess is that the Pentagon and CENTCOM have a lot more work to do. As for the Houthis in Yemen, we can seriously erode their capabilities for willing to keep striking and not just the Houthis. Those Iranian and Hezbollah advisors in Yemen are more than fair game. Headline two, the Qatari-owned Al Jazeera television network has branded the U.S. and U.K. military operations in Yemen as aggression. Are you surprised? Of course you aren't. Al Jazeera has been whipping up anti-American sentiment for decades. It's a huge part of the problem when it comes to radicalization in the Middle East. And while the Qataris say they don't control the content of the channel, I'll just note here that Qatari corruption and terrorism scandals are never, ever reported on their airwaves. So what's next? I remain utterly frustrated with the Biden administration's policy as it relates to Qatar, but this is not Biden-specific. Successive presidents, Democrat and Republican, have failed to call out the Qataris for their terrorism support, for their illicit finance, for their corruption, and for the incitement on their airwaves. Oh, and by the way, as I understand it, not one of those airstrikes were con uh, that we conducted were flown out of the al Air airbase in Qatar. So why do we have our base there, if not for moments like these? It's time to move. And speaking of Qatar, headline three, talks continue through the Qatari channel to reach a hostage deal between Hamas and Israel. According to reports, the Hamas leadership is in disagreement on the terms of another deal. The external leaders are not on the same page as the internal leaders, namely Yahya Sinwar. But as the Israelis press forward in Han Yunus and perhaps even in Rafah, a deal with Israel may be the only move that Hamas has left to make. It could be the only thing that would save the group from annihilation. Now, I know the Israelis desperately want a deal, but it may not be the worst thing to wait another week or two. Let's not forget that the destruction of Hamas is necessary in order for the southern communities to return to their homes. It's necessary for the IDF to move on to the northern front if a war with Hezbollah is required. And it is necessary for the country to hold elections an unfortunate scenario that appears increasingly likely in the coming months. We'll continue, we'll continue to track all of that here at the FDD Morning Brief. I'm now pleased to introduce you to Michael Rubin. During the Iraq War, Michael spent a lot of time running around outside the U.S.-controlled Green Zone. He got to know the Iraqi politicians, the major, major players there. He got to understand the, the, the horizon. He also came to understand the full extent of Iran influence in that country. So we brought him on the program today to help us make sense of the Shiite militia conundrum that our men and women in uniform are currently trying to tackle. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the basics. Tell us about these militias. How many are there? What kinds of capabilities do they have? And how dangerous are they? Well, first of all, they're extremely dangerous. Many of these militias were trained and founded by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. That said, two caveats. There's two types of militias. Those that were founded by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and that usually happened around the time the U.S. went into Iraq in 2003. And the other militias are the ones that rose up to defeat the Islamic State uh, at the calling of Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani. Now, what often happens, the Iranians, of course, um, the Iranian-backed militias answer to Iran, they're a threat to Iraqi sovereignty, and they don't actually have the legitimacy that the Sistani-backed militias have, but they try to take it. We shouldn't do Iran's job for them by bestowing legitimacy upon them and suggesting that they're all the same. The other thing is it's a little bit like Lebanon. 
where they have Iran-backed militias. But like you said, each of them, these proxy groups has proxy groups. And so they've established Christian proxy groups, Sunni proxy groups, Yazidi proxy groups. Just like in Lebanon, Michel Aoun was a quizzling for Hezbollah. You have that same sort of dynamic that goes on in Iraq. I will, I mean, you mentioned this. The crazy thing about these militias is that they are loyal to Iran, or many of them are, and many are wielded by the Iraqi and Syrian regimes for their own security, fighting ISIS and the like. How exactly did that happen? Well, I mean, basically, Iran is proactive. They have agency. They, while we look at diplomacy, and this is during the Bush administration, as how to get to yes, and we try to negotiate deals with Iran for non-interference before the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom, the Revolutionary Guard didn't pay attention. They decided to insert groups in, and they understand that while the United States often talks about democracy, in our rush to have elections, in our rush to work with democratic groups, we're willing to turn a blind eye to groups, political parties, that use the ballot box to try to get legitimacy. But when that doesn't work, they use the point of a gun. And so the Iranians figured with groups like the Badr Corps that they could do this. Today in Iraq, there's three main Iranian-backed militias, Kataib Hezbollah, Asaib Ali al-Haq, and um, Harakat Hezbollah Nujaba. And each of them have other groups within their orbits. But basically, they've become a cancer inside the system. And a little while ago, what the Iraqis did under the time of Prime Minister Ayad Alawi about um, 10, 10 years ago, is they were brought formally into the defense ministry with this idea that perhaps we could quarantine them. And if we bring them into a system, then we could gain control over them. That doesn't work. And it doesn't work for one main reason. They've got Iranian backing. They've got populist support, and even our own political allies in Iraq, people like uh, in the past, Prime Minister Mustafa Qadami, when he gets ambition and wants to run for a second term, he decides he's no longer going to try to tackle these militias. Instead, he's going to try to co-opt them so they support him. Same thing happens in Lebanon. We have the army chief of staff, Joseph Aoun, and instead of tackling Hezbollah, he now denies the problem exists because if he ever wants to rise to the presidency, he figures he's got to count on Hezbollah's support. So our strategy hasn't worked and we're in a state of denial. Um, we want to pretend that we can quarantine them, but we're not calibrating our policy towards reality. Uh, let me ask you, I mean, out of all the militias that we're tracking, and of course there are, a, I don't know, a good dozen and a half of them at this point, which are the ones that concern you most right now and why? Well, first of all, Hadi Amri and the Badr Corps. And the reason for that is they're trained by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. But we have Kataib Hezbollah, which has killed Americans. And Asaib Ali al-Haq has the top floor of the Babylon Hotel, which is right across the Tigris River from the American embassy, so they can look down on our embassy compound. What we've got to be most careful of, John, is not simply targeting one, but recognizing the forest through the trees to recognize that this is an ever-shifting alphabet soup. When I teach for the military, what I often say is an Iranian strategy, because Iran's a country that goes back 2,000 years. They have their own intellectual history. They have their own strategy. We can't project ourselves onto them. Instead of streamlining command and control, they bifurcate it 
And that's a way in order to maintain plausible deniability. We can't let them get away with that. Agreed. Um, okay, do you think that the US strikes on these militias so far have been effective? I mean, I think out of the first 165 or so, we responded eight times primarily to warehouses um, and empty buildings. We obviously have stepped up those attacks with another 85 or so after the Kataib Hezbollah killing of our three service members. So, I mean, I guess the question is what can or should be done here? Is there concern from your perspective about getting sucked into a wider conflict? I mean, this is not popular, another war in Iraq uh, here in the United States. I mean, what's the way forward? Well, I'll go out on a limb and say, say that when these strikes occurred, there was probably happiness in, in Iran because we weren't targeting the Iranians. We were targeting, uh, as you said, empty warehouses. As Mark Dubowitz has said, if you want the Iranians to pay attention, you've got to go after the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commanders. And there's plenty of them in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen, because the Iranians have always been willing to fight to the last Arab, to the last Palestinian, to the last Yemeni. They're not going to care if we go after empty warehouses. Now, in 1998, President Bill Clinton had Operation Desert Fox, a sustained campaign to try to bring Saddam Hussein back in line. We didn't telegraph all our targets ahead of time under Bill Clinton. Likewise, when Donald Trump went after Qasem Soleimani back on, in January 2020, he didn't telegraph that in advance. Why the Biden administration did this? Honestly, my read is I think it was military virtue signaling. They were trying to have it both ways. On one hand, trying to signal to the United States that they were doing something to avenge the deaths of our servicemen. But on the other hand, the Biden administration is so afraid of escalation, as you said, that they wanted to signal to the Iranians that we wanted to contain this. The problem is deterrence is both military and psychological. And if you're trying to tell the Iranians that don't worry, we're gonna abide by your red lines, that takes away the psychological component and eviscerates the meaning of deterrence. Agreed. And we're definitely hearing some pushback from the administration about that critique right now. But let's let's talk about another critique here uh, from you, that uh, we are not deploying our aircraft carriers properly. You know something about them because you sometimes teach courses on them, which is very unique, I would say. So what is exactly your critique here? OK, well, the key with aircraft carriers is, I mean, they're our main platform for offense. And when I would teach on aircraft carriers, and as you know, I spent about a year at sea over a decade. Whenever I would ask admirals or retired admirals or chiefs of naval operations this question, what, what should our deployment be if we want the Iranians to take us seriously in our diplomacy? To a man and a woman, what they would say is you've got to put our aircraft carriers not in the Persian Gulf, but about 400 miles away from Iran in the Indian Ocean. And that may be counterintuitive, but in the Persian Gulf, our aircraft carriers are vulnerable to those speedboats, to drones, to uh, anti-ship missiles, and so forth. If we're 400 miles away in the deep blue sea of the Indian Ocean, they Iranians would know we can strike at them. They can't strike back at us. And that's when they start to take notice. Okay. Uh, last question for you. You've spent a lot of time in the Horn of Africa in recent years. 
We haven't heard much about the way these countries have been impacted by the Houthi shutdown of Red Sea traffic, although that has to be a factor for them. Why are these countries not more involved in countering the economic war being waged by Iran and its Yemeni proxy? Well, I mean, first of all, John, one of the big things I'm worried about, which we don't spend enough time on, and this impacts some of the Red Sea traffic, is Israel's supply of gasoline and so forth. Are the Houthis, even though it's not stated, trying to shut this down? When it comes to the Indians, when you're sitting in New Delhi, everything's about India, of course. But the Indians say this isn't just about the Hamas, and it's not just about Red Sea traffic. It's about the Iranians trying to shut down this India-Middle East economic corridor, which bypasses Iran. Remember, the Revolutionary Guard can, um, control a lot of the logistics. And so if the North-South corridor is getting bypassed, that's a problem. But when it comes to Africa, I'll be an academic and actually get to your question. The fact of the matter is that um, while the United States is asleep at the switch, it actually looks like there's a real possibility that the British government may finally recognize Somaliland, this breakaway region of Somalia, which is like the Iraqi Kurdistan. It's got a 400, 500 mile coast along the Gulf of Aden. It's stable, it's secure, it's democratic, and they've got a military base, which we used to use as an emergency space shuttle landing strip. That may, we may get a new country out of this, a pro-Western, pro-Taiwan country, as opposed to pro-China, and a country that actually wants to recognize Israel as well. And it will be interesting to see if the map changes as an unintended consequence of what the Iranians and the Houthis are doing. All right, we're gonna leave it there. Thank you, Michael Rubin, for joining us today. Okay, here's what FTD's tracking. My colleague, Bill Roggio, the editor of FTD's Long War Journal, is digging into a new UN report that reveals ramped up facilitation between Iran and Al-Qaeda following the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is now running training camps in 10 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces with five religious schools to indoctrinate Afghan children and a new base for stockpiling weaponry. In other words, Taliban-ruled Afghanistan is becoming more dangerous today than it was just prior to 9-11. Experts from FTD Center on Economic and Financial Power, CEFP, are looking into Hamas cryptocurrency. Recently, an Israeli firm helped authorities claw back $90 million of Hamas-owned virtual assets and prompted investigations into digital wallets held by that lovely UN agency known as UNRWA. After that halt in funding to UNRWA, FTD experts will continue to monitor this case and Hamas finance more broadly. On Friday, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned IRGC operatives responsible for hacking a dozen small water utilities around the United States. FTD's Cyber Center, CCTI, has been warning about this for years. The Treasury action signaled that we know precisely who was responsible, but it's really the least thing we could do. A foreign country successfully hacking U.S. critical infrastructure? Payback is needed. Okay, that's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at FDD.org slash invest. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you bright and early on Wednesday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief featuring Amichai Stein, a talented journalist at Israel's Channel 11. He'll give us the very latest from the Holy Land. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Thank you.